Amen. Please be seated. Let's watch the video. Is there really a God and am I going to trust him or not? When something happens to your kids and there's nothing you can do, it is one of the most powerless feelings I've ever had in my life. Uh, my youngest son, Jake, came down with diabetes and we had to rush him to the hospital because he was about to die. He had to stay in the hospital for a couple of days. And I started questioning God because I had been trying to do the best I could possibly do. Why would this be happening to some to us? Because we love the Lord and we're trying to do what right what's right by Him. And I was wondering if I was going to really serve God or not. Was I going to trust Him or not? Because I couldn't fix it, but I felt like God could. That night, one night after services on Sunday, that I was moved to moved. And that night I said, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe in you. You're God. I go into Jake's room and I get down on my knees and I give him to God. And I said, he's yours. You do with him whatever you will, whether it be his life or his death. I just pray that it will glorify you in all ways. I go into Zach's room and I gave Zach to God said the same thing. Then I went into our bedroom where Kim was asleep and I gave her to the Lord. And then I walked out into the hall and I just gave myself to the Lord. And I said, okay, I'm yours. Whatever you will, my life, my death, and everything in between is yours. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. That's when things really started changing. Doors started opening up everywhere. I, I told God, is there anybody here that needs you? I, I'm, I'm willing and able to, to do whatever you want me to do. And I don't know how many people I started sharing the gospel with. I pulled all our family in at that time and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to give God all the glory. We're going to give Him all the praise and all the worship. It's all Him, and it's about Him. There's going to be people watching us. And uh, we want to make sure that we are shining an example for God at that time. Uh, we have an opportunity here to shine, and I don't expect our family to do anything different. And that's exactly what happened. And I'm going to tell you something. God blessed us for it. I love seeing videos like that because it reminds me, first of all, that I am powerless. That without God in control of my life, I can do nothing. And secondly, I like watching videos like that because even though me and Mary live in Colorado, this is home. And I'll look out and see family sitting here this morning, forever family. I remember that you guys are the ones that introduced me to a Savior, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then you taught me how to be a good man because you introduced me to a great Savior.
Thank you for that. Good morning, WFR. That's all you got? Good morning, WFR. All right, now, I love being in the right place. You know, there was a Sunday school teacher who was speaking to her second graders about the resurrection of Jesus, and one of the students asked her, what did Jesus say when he first came out of the tomb? And the teacher started to say, well, we don't know. But this little girl, Susie, raised her hand. She goes, I know, I know. And the teacher said, all right, what did Jesus say? She throws her shoulders back with a big smile and said, (laughs) ta-da! You know, we don't know, of course, what Jesus said. But I'm telling you this. When a dead person comes back to life, you better believe it was a ta-da moment. This morning we're starting a sermon series on the Beatitudes and how they relate to recovery. And it's my hope that somewhere along this series, in the next few weeks, you have that ta-da moment. That moment when you say, wow, you know what, there is something in my life that is holding me back from having the relationship that I want to have with God. There's something holding me back from being all that God wants me to be. There's something that's holding me back from being all that I want to be. Whether it's that feeling of powerlessness over a struggle that you have in your life or a child that has an illness that you can't fix. All of us come to that point in our lives when we finally have to admit, I can't do this. I can't do this in and of myself. But I believe that everybody in this room today needs recovery. And if you're thinking... Well, that's not a very biblical word. Okay, I got one for you. Sanctification. And some of you may be sitting in here, if you're new to Christ, you may be saying, well, that sounds like a big Bible word, but I don't quite know what sanctification means. Well, it means getting closer to Jesus one moment at a time, one step at a time, one day at a time. Walking in the Spirit that He has given us To live inside us as we live this life. And I love in Galatians 5 where we're instructed to do this. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in God's Spirit. You know, I love the fact that God says walk, right? Don't you? I love that. Because He knew a lot of us, including me, would get here. We'd be so excited. We'd take off running wide open. We'd fall, stumble, trip, whatever, and mess that up. So He said, Mac... You just need to walk in the Spirit. And that's a good place for me to be today. You know, if you have your Bibles, I would say turn to Genesis chapter 3 real quickly. I just want to show you something. Because there's someone here this morning that may be not quite convinced that recovery is what they need. Or they may be thinking, you know, that's good for those really messed up folks. Bless their heart. (laughs) But I really don't need recovery. You see, I'm looking at my Bible, and I came to chapter 3 in Genesis, and I'm holding that up right now. That's chapter 3 right there, and everything that's before it. These are God's instructions to us and how we mess that up. Right there. All this is about recovery. The rest of it. And you see, in that rest of the book that's about recovery, two-thirds of that, if you turn over to Malachi, last of the minor prophets, right before Matthew, if you turn over to Malachi, now you've got 
that, roughly two-thirds of the Bible, right there. Two-thirds of the Bible tells how we tried to get it right and couldn't. Then the last one-third of the Bible right here, God says, Now, this is the only way you'll get it right, with my Son, Jesus Christ. And you won't be able to do it alone. You're going to have to depend on Him, and then you're going to have to depend on each other. I want you to be accountable to each other. I want you to work on this life together. As a matter of fact, when I look through the Bible, I don't see any of God's great heroes or leaders that made it through it alone. I don't. God says you're going to need each other if you're going to make it. Then Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts his ministry by preaching an eight-point sermon and starts out with, unless you're broken, I got nothing for you. And that's what we're going to pick up today, looking at the first two points of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But before we do that, I just want to reassure you that God wants to help you overcome the hurts and the hang-ups and the habits, all those things you've experienced in your life that have really messed things up. God wants to help you with those. In Isaiah 57, 18, it says this, I have seen how they acted, but... I love it when God says but, right? Because it should have said, I have seen how they acted, and now I'm going to wipe them out. But that's not what he said. He said, I've seen how they acted, but I will heal them. I will lead them. I will help them, and I will comfort those who mourn. I offer peace to all near and far. What great promises that God has in that one little verse. And I look at those, and I'm thinking, wow, those are the things that I gained back when I got into recovery, when I got into Jesus. God says, if you've been hurt, I want to heal you. If you're confused, I want to lead you. If you've ever felt helpless to change, I want to help you change. If you've ever felt no one understands your problems, I want to comfort you. And if you feel anxious, worried, or afraid, I want to give you peace. God says he'll heal us, lead us, change us, comfort us, and lead us into peace. You know, the fact is, life is tough. Life is tough. We live in an imperfect world, right? The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And some of you in here may be wondering, now, who does that all include? It includes you and me, specifically. But it includes the whole world, too. But specifically, it includes me. We've all been hurt, and when we get hurt... The natural thing for hurt people to do is hurt other people, right? That's just the way it goes. So this series is really going to be for everybody. Everyone in this room needs recovery unless, of course, you have lived a sinlessly perfect life. And I'll just go ahead and say it. I know you haven't. God knows you haven't, and you know you haven't. And I know this because of Philippians 1.6, where God said this through Paul. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on completion. And then he gives us a completion date. I love that, don't you? Because God knows us. We would have a list out and we would check things off. And as soon as we got everything checked off that we put on that list, we would say, Woo, we made it. And God said, no. You'll be complete when Jesus Christ comes back. Last time I checked, he's not back. So that means me and you 
got the work to do. We're a work in progress. So you ask yourself, well, I don't know. What is it I need to recover from? Well, the good news, it really doesn't matter. We all need to recover from something. But the steps to recovery are all going to be the same. And the first one starts out where everybody needs to start out. And that's the R in recovery that stands for realize. Realize I'm not God. I admit I'm powerless to control my tendencies to do the wrong things and that my life is unmanageable in some area. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're broken, i got nothing for you. Think about it. What do you need to recover from? Do you ever stay up late when you know you need to sleep? <laughs> you know, unless you're with the fishers of men ministry, not much is happening late at night that's good. At least it never was for me. Do you ever eat more than your body actually needs? Do you ever know the right thing to do, but you just don't do it? Do you ever know the wrong thing, and you know it's wrong, but then you decide to do it anyway? Are you ever unselfish, and you know you shouldn't be, but you're selfish? I mean, you know you shouldn't be unselfish. You know you shouldn't be selfish. You should be unselfish. Have you ever tried to control somebody or something and found that it was uncontrollable? You know, if you answered yes to any of these, and there's a bunch more we could ask, but if you answered yes to any of these, welcome to the human race. Everybody in here needs recovery at some point in their life. But what's the cause of my problem? What's the cause of my problem? Me. I'm not the cause of your problems. You're the cause of your problems. But I'm the cause of my problems. Teddy Roosevelt said it like this. I love it when he said this. If you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit down for a month. (laughs) The Bible just calls it my sin nature. My sin nature gets me in all kinds of trouble, and so does yours. It gets you in trouble. You know it does. I do things that aren't good for me. I do things even when I know they're self-destructive, and I don't do things that I know are good for me. I respond in the wrong way when I'm hurt. And it just increases the hurt. I react the wrong way towards people. I treat them wrong. And then when it backfires on me and I figure out it's not going to work, then I try to fix the problem and it's usually worse than it was if I would have just left it alone. Proverbs 14 says this, There's a way that seems right to a man or woman, but in the end leads to death or destruction. Unfortunately, you will always have this sin nature with you, this desire to do wrong things. You're going to always have it with you until you get to heaven. Even, here's the weird part, even after you become a Christian, you still have the desire of things that want to pull you away from the relationship with Jesus that you know you want to have. Does anybody else think that this stinks even after we become a Christian? I sure do, because when I became a Christian, I said, I'm done with sin. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then still that evil desire, that sin nature was still in me. Romans 7.15, we see that we're not alone because the Apostle Paul understood this too. 7.15. I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong, but I can't help myself because it's the sin inside me that makes me do these evil things. 
I know that I'm rotten through and through, so as far as my old sin nature is concerned, I don't know what to do. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. Whoa! What? Wait! Hold it! That's Paul! Transformed Paul, the man of God, the one who wrote Romans 6 and Romans 8 and sandwiched Romans 7 right in the middle of them. You know, I've been studying through the book of Romans lately, and I was reading from a theologian, J.I. Packer, and his commentary on this part of the Scripture. And what he said really uh, made sense to me. It made me really stop and think, actually. He said this, Paul wasn't struggling with sin because he was such a rank sinner at the time that he wrote this. Paul was struggling because he was such a saint. Sin makes you numb. People who sin over and over again become desensitized to sin. The reason Paul's struggle was so intense was not because he was caught in a web of sin or because he thought of himself as hopelessly doomed to giving in to temptations that he faced over and over again. Rather, it was because Paul lived such a life that was so sensitive to the Holy Spirit and passionate about the glory of God that he intensely felt his sins whenever he became aware that he had committed a sin. Because, of course, he was not sinlessly perfect. We know that. But here's the part that really stuck out to me. In other words, you can see a black spider crawling on your shirt a lot better when you're wearing a white shirt than if you're wearing a black one. Wow. I want to be that sensitive to the sin in my life. This is the type of people that God uses in mighty ways. Not sinlessly perfect people, but people who see the spider for what it is and say, I will not, I cannot live with that. I've got to get that out of my life. People who have become sensitive to God's Holy Spirit and to His leading. People that realize no matter how long that I live on this earth, I will never come to a place where I'm complete until Jesus comes back. I will be a work in progress until the sky busts open and I go home. And by the way, that's the kind of people God used all through the Bible, right? Broken people. Men and women who didn't have it all together. Men and women who admitted it. They can't do it by themselves. They surrender to God. They say, Father, please fix me. I'm broken. I need to recover what I've lost. I want to recover what I gave up. Father, please help me. I give up. I surrender. I need you. And some of you have heard some of these examples from me before of people that God used in mighty ways. Mess-ups, misfits, malcontents, those are the people that God used in the Bible, all ones that turned their life over to Him. Men like Moses, who definitely had an anger problem, right? Every time he got angry, he hit something and broke it. Then there was Abraham, who definitely struggled with telling the truth. David had purity issues. He was the kind of guy who wouldn't allow to be alone with his computer unless his accountability partners were in the room with him. Paul was so distracted with religion, it led him to killing people, God's people. Peter had anger and abandonment issues. Mary Magdalene had so many demons, she didn't name them all. And then Rahab, my personal favorite. You remember her, she was (laughs) self-employed. Where did we ever get the idea that when people come into this church, God's church, our church, that we need to tell them, you know, you might want to keep those problems to yourself. Or we tell ourselves things like, I don't want to tell anybody my problems because if I do, they won't think I have it all together. (laughs) We don't already think you have it all together. 
That's not what God did with his people. His leaders, his broken leaders that turned to him, he wrote down all their problems in black and white and then gave it to us in a Bible. And now he said, now, check out the people who I chose to lead this movement that will change the world. And Rahab is my absolute favorite of all the ones God used because a prostitute shows up in the lineage of our Savior, Jesus Christ. If I were God, thank God I'm not, but if I was, I would probably have a discussion about this and say, you know what, we don't have to share all our dirty laundry, right? Let's just keep her name out of the book. God says, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to keep that on the down low. No. (laughs) He said, we're going to write her name down and then everybody's going to know that I only use broken people. A prostitute held the safety of God's people in her hand and God says, that's my girl. (laughs) Our church has got to be a safe place. God... My bad. God's church has got to be a safe place for people to share their life struggles. And admitting that I do indeed struggle, I have to ask myself, why is this happening in my life? Why can't I just do what's right? I want to do what's right. I really do. And the answer is actually pretty easy. What causes all these problems? Well, the cause of my problems are that I really want to be God. We want to be God. I'm not alone in this. I know you. You say things like, I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want anybody telling me what's right and wrong. I want to decide what's right and wrong myself. I want to call my own shots. I want to be my own boss. I want to make up my own rules. If it feels good, you better believe I'm going to do it. I don't want anybody telling me what to do with my life. That, my friends, is playing God. When I say any of those statements, even mentally think those, That's me trying to play God. And this is not something new. This is man's oldest problem. From the very beginning of time, Adam and Eve were in the garden. God put them in this paradise, and they tried to control paradise. God says, don't eat off of this tree. That's mine. 10%, right, Trent? From the very beginning of time, God sets apart a special place, says, that's mine. Don't touch it. What'd they do? (laughs) They made a beeline straight for it. They heard Satan say, if you eat this, you'll be just like God. So that's been the problem from the very beginning of time. I want to be God. I want to call my own shots. I want to run my own life. And I won't listen to anybody. So why is it that we try to play God? Well, one thing is we want to control our image. You don't want to control what other people think about you. You don't want other people to really know what you're really like. If I wear just the right mask, I can keep hidden right under the surface who I really am, and you'll never know who I really am. And I can't figure this out because I'm thinking, why am I so afraid to tell you that I struggle? We've already established the fact that none of us are sinlessly perfect. All of us are going to struggle till we get back. We're a work in progress. So why is it that I'm afraid to do that? Another reason is we try to control other people. We try to control our kids. Our kids try to control us. We try to control our wives. Our wives try to control their husbands. We want to control other people. And we use all kinds of tools to manipulate each other in this life too, don't we? We use things like fear and praise and sometimes the silent treatment or anger or rage. 
We try to control people, and it seems like it would be in the very DNA of who we are. We want to be in control. And then we try, this is one of my favorites, we try to control or manage our problems. You know, anytime I hear somebody say they need to go to anger management classes, and I'm sure that there's some good things that happen there. If you've been there and found some good results, fantastic. But when I hear somebody say, I want to manage my anger, you know, when every time I tried to manage my sin problems, they never worked out very well for me. You know, we say things like, I can handle that. It's really not a problem. It's not that bad. I'm not that bad. I don't need any help. I certainly don't need to go to counseling. My personal favorite. I can quit anytime I want. I'll work it out on my own. And I find the more I try to fix my problems myself, the worse the problem gets. Fourth, we try to play God when we control our pain. We try to control the pain. We try to do this by avoiding it, denying it, escaping it, reducing it, postponing it. And we do that in a whole lot of different ways, don't we? We get drunk, we smoke dope, we take pills because the doctor said it was okay to take those pills. We eat our way through problems, we get in a relationship after relationship, and there's many more ways we try to do this. We try to control our pain. You know, pain comes in those quiet moments when we realize, when there's no other sounds, We realize that we're not God. We can't control everything that's around us. And that is scary. It's that perceived loss of control. And that is the first step. When we realize that we're not in control, we are powerless to do the right thing in and of ourselves. You've got to face it. You've got to stop denying. You know, Bill Smith, one of my greatest mentors, and if you don't have a mentor, by the way, you need to get one. Everybody needs a mentor. I needed several. Some of us are more messed up than others, but everybody needs a mentor. You know, those early days, he filled my head with so much good stuff, sometimes it just felt like it was going to explode. But he was also a man that I could sit down with any of my problems And he would sit with me, and he would listen. And then he would help me reason things out in a godly way. You know, he said something once that just took me back. And uh, I was listening to him, and someone came in and said, What's the biggest change in WFR in the last 20 years? Without missing a beat, he said, Oh, that's easy. When the drug addicts got here, they taught the rest of us how to be honest. Now, before you misunderstand that, he was not saying that the drug addicts had it all together. (laughs) Quite the contrary. He was saying that when a bunch of people showed up here and had nothing to gain by hiding their sins and their struggles anymore, and they knew they were powerless to change their lives on their own, and they started admitting their struggles and confessing their sins, it became the first step in their road to freedom. And fortunately for the ones that came, the broken people who showed up looking for help, they found the most loving family that God had been preparing in advance to accept them. Amen. WFR truly became a hospital for the sin sick, 
a place where people could come and heal and become to be whole in their life and no longer had to hide their struggles as they were introduced to the one and the only one who could truly help them, Jesus Christ. And that takes us to our next step in recovery, the E in recovery. Where we earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. Matthew 5, 4 says, Happy or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How do you break out of that bad habit of trying to control everything? Because that's what it is, it's a bad habit. You have to get past the denial that you're using that insulates you from the reality that your life really is a mess. You've made a mess of things. You know, because denial is what keeps us from ever moving forward in our recovery. We have to stop excusing ourselves and accusing others, because that's what we do, right? I say things like, it's really not my fault. If they wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have had to do this. We say things like, no, it's really not a problem, really. No, really, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can handle this. If my wife would just get her act together, our marriage would be fine. It's time we moved out of denial and accept the responsibility that it's ours for our actions. You know what? I heard, I heard delay is the deadliest form of denial. Because as long as I delay, I'll keep in my junk. I'll stay where God doesn't want me. I'll stay where I don't want to be. One more day than I have to. You know, fortunately, God has an antidote for denial. Unfortunately, it's pain. You know, we rely, we, we, we rely on our feelings so much, but we want to shut that pain out, right? You know, rarely do people change when they see the light. At least I didn't. I didn't see the light and I thought, ooh, come to Jesus moment. I felt the heat. That's when I came to Jesus. The pressure was on. I was destroying everything in my life. That's when I said, i got to change. i got to do something. And I don't know how I can do it. That's when I was introduced in step two to the power that could help me change forever, Jesus Christ. Hebrews eleven six says this. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So when I get this to this step in my recovery, there are two parts of this step that I need to take. First of all, I need to acknowledge God's existence. You know, most people actually don't have a problem with this. Gallup did a poll several years back, and at that point in time, about 96% of Americans said, I believe in a higher power in God, in something greater than me. Only 2% said that they were devout atheists. And I wondered, why did that happen? Because more and more people with all the scientific discoveries we have were thinking, you know what? I can't believe that this just happened by random accident. In fact, it takes a lot more faith to believe in an accident than it does to believe in the Creator. The more we know about the universe, the more we are convinced that there is a Creator and acknowledge His existence. Romans 1.20 says it like this. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen. Not just by us, by all. It's hard to deny 
that there was a creator to everything we see. Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. So the real issue, the root of it, is not, is there a God? That's a given for a majority of people. The real issue is, what kind of God is He? What's He really like? And the problem is, we have some pretty strange ideas about God sometimes, right? I love the story about the kindergarten teacher who was observing her classroom as they drew some things. And as she walked around and looked at all the children's artwork, she came up on one little girl and she said, Hey, what is that you're drawing? And she said, Well, I'm drawing God. And the teacher paused and said, But no one knows what God looks like. And the girl, without missing a beat, looked up to her and said, He will in just a minute. Unfortunately, most of us get our ideas about God by thinking he's like one of our parents, your father or your mother. And actually, that can be fairly tragic. Because if your father was distant and unloving, you tend to think God of the universe is the same way. If your parent was somebody to be feared, then you think, I need to be afraid of God. If your father was abusive, then you tend to think God will probably be abusive as well. If your parent was uncaring, then you transfer that over Onto God. Instead of acknowledging that God made you in His image, we want to make God in our image. You know, just because you have a certain idea about God, does that mean it's right? No. No, it doesn't. What I want to know is, what's He really like? And He gave us this book to find out. That would be a great place to start if you want to find out what God's like. Because the second step in this recovery, understanding God's character, is not just acknowledging His existence, but understanding His character. What's He really like? Because until I know what God is like, I'm going to have a hard time trusting Him. I need to find out what He's like. And you know what? I love it. Colossians is, if not my favorite book in the New Testament, it's right there at the top. In chapter 1, it's pretty clear with its description of God. You can't hardly miss it. I don't know how you could miss it, because it says this in verse 15. You want to know what God is like? Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know how God acts, look at how Jesus Christ acted while He was here on this earth. If you're reading about Jesus and studying His life, you'll learn a lot about the Father. The biggest thing I learned about God from Jesus is that He wants to meet to be victorious over my hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Anything that I'm struggling with, He wants me to be victorious. So I know that God does too. You know, I'm thinking about God and how does He, how do I I know this about Him? Well, I'm looking at Jesus and I know that because of His love love for us, God knows about all my situations that I'm going through. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows that some of you in here today have had a really tough week. He knows some of you have had a tough month. And even beyond that, He knows some of you in here have had a tough life. Look at what the Bible says about that, Psalms 56. You know how troubled I am? You know how troubled I am. And yet you've kept a record of all my tears. Does that sound incredible to you? That everything I've ever gone through, my life is a mess, I'm having a tough time, and God said, I know. I've written down every one of your tears. I've recorded it. 
God knows me and you up close and personal. Yeah, but nobody knows all the stuff that I'm going through in this marriage. Nobody knows how I'm struggling in my mind with this addiction or this habit. I can't get it out of my mind. Nobody knows the depression and the fear that I'm going through. And you may be right about the people sitting around you, but you're wrong, dead wrong, because God has kept a record of everything you've gone through. He knows what you're going through. Nothing escapes his notice. Psalms 31 says this, You've seen the crisis in my soul. God is aware of all our needs, the Bible says, before we even ask for it. He sees the crisis in your soul. The one you've got in there today, when you're sitting here in a group of people and you're feeling all alone because you've got something in here that you need to get out, but you're scared to do it. This is a safe place. It's a safe place. God says, I know what you're going through. And then there's the one that I really don't like to look at in Psalm 69 when God says, David says about God knowing, he knows how foolish I've been. That's the one I really don't want to look at, right? I just want to forget that part because God knows all the dumb stuff that we do. The fact is there's nothing off record with God. We can't say, okay, we're going off record right now, right? No, we can't say that. God says, I'm with you 24 hours a day, whether you like it or not. I have an audience with you all day long. He knows my good days, my bad days, my dumb stunts that I've pulled, foolish decisions, and amazingly, He still loves me and you. You know, it's so cool because the fact is that God is not shocked by your sin. You don't do something and God says, Whoa, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> he knew it was coming long before you did. He even knows why you did it. He knows what motivated you to do it, even when you don't. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He knows you. Yeah, but I didn't live up to his expectations. Are you kidding me? God has no expectations of you. Expectations are when you think somebody's going to do something and then you wonder if they will. God knows the future. He knows what you're going to do. And he still loves you and me. And that makes me want to do my best. It really does. It makes me so want to be so aware of that black spider on a white shirt. I want that sin to be out of my life. Next, God cares about my situation. I love Psalms 103 where it says this. He's like a father to us, tender and sympathetic, for he knows what we are made of dust. He knows we're fragile. He said, that's why I'm tender and sympathetic towards them. That's the kind of God... We serve. He loves me on my good days. He loves me on my bad days. He loves me when I serve Him. He loves me when I don't. He loves me when I'm right. He loves me when I'm wrong. Because His love is unconditional. It's based on His character. And the character of God, the Bible says, is He is love. He proved it to us in Romans 5, 8, where He said, 
he showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. And if you look at that verse and a little bit below that, he says, I did that when you were my ungodly enemy, not when you had everything all together. When you were powerless, that's when I sent my son to die for you. So I come to understand that God can change me. He can change my situation, and that's good news. But he's waiting on something. He's waiting on mine and your surrender. You see, he won't do it unless we surrender. He won't force himself on us. He's waiting on our surrender. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power is to help those who believe him. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is ready and available to work in your life with your surrender. That's power. You might be thinking, yeah, but. You don't know all the things I've gone through. Trust me on this. There is not a problem that we have not dealt with here at WFR. If you're going through something think nobody else has ever gone through this, please come and see one of the leaders after this is over, and they will not only share someone's story with you who has gone through the same thing you're going through, they will share with you someone who has been victorious over it because of Jesus Christ. And then they're going to probably point you to a little old place on Friday night called Celebrate Recovery, a place where we deal with all of life's hard issues. It's a place where people come to share their victories and what God is doing in their life and understand that we cannot do this alone. So here's the point. The longer you postpone your pain, the further recovery gets away. The longer you deny it, postpone it, saying it's not a problem, it's not a big issue, I can deal with it, I can handle it, the fewer days you have on this earth to be all God meant you to be. And there is a cure. There is a cure. I can't leave you without telling that. It's not me. And it's not you. It's Jesus Christ. See, the first steps on the road to recovery is to admit that I am powerless. And the second one is coming to believe that Jesus Christ is the one that can help me recover. So what does that mean for me today? It means being honest. It means facing the problems that you've wanted to ignore for so long. The pain has been really great, but you tend to ignore it. It means joining this family on the road to freedom, the road to recovery. I'll leave you with this. James 4, 6 says this, the brother of Jesus, by the way. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what's that mean in, in my head? As long as you think you can do this on your own, God says, not only will I not help you, I will oppose you. That's not a place I want to be. But 
when you surrender, there is not enough bad that you could have ever done that can keep my grace from covering you and making you as white as snow. Our Father is ready to shower His grace upon you. When you finally come to that sweet spot and say the words that He so longs to hear, I give up. I surrender. I quit. Please help me. If you're tired of acting like you have it all together, He's waiting on you. And so are we. If you have any need this morning, please come while we stand and sing.